0: Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates, price and coverage match limited by state law.
1: Welcome into the Austin Audibles Podcast. I'm my prey Merc Scopel on the show as always. And it's Wednesday, December 30th, when we are releasing the show. Maybe you listen to it a couple of days later. Thank you for listening to the Austin Audibles Podcast. It's mailbag day. We've got six questions, a lot to dive into, but before we Answer the best six questions we got submitted this week. And there were a ton. I want to remind you or make you aware, I should say, of a promotion right now on DuckTerritory.com. Two, two months for $1 at DuckTerritory.com. Sign up today. Become a VIP member. $2. I cannot say this correctly. Two months for $1. Again, two months for $1. It's typically $1 for your first month. Nine ninety five. Thereafter, that we're giving you an extra month in honor of the new year, in honor of the fiesta bowl, in honor of the number one ranked recruiting class in the Pac twelve. Two months, one dollar nine ninety five. Thereafter, that. Uh, other ways to support the show: please go and consider giving us a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to the podcast. That helps us tremendously, and it helps give us good feedback as well. Okay, Eric, uh, six questions. We've got a lot to talk about, and I've got a sneaking suspicion a lot of it's going to tie into the news of the week with Andy Avalos, the Fiesta Bowl, and recruiting.
0: Dang. Yeah, you've seen the questions, right, Matt? (laughs) Yeah, that's exactly what we're talking about. And we'll start with this one, actually, which is a little bit less focused on this week, but more on the big picture, and I think ties into some of the – some of the things we discussed with Oregon players on Tuesday morning. And this question comes from S fought three, two, four. Exactly. How does the pause on eligibility work? Do players have to opt into it? Do they have to use it now? Or can they wait in case of an injury? Hashtag Ots and audibles. And he did clarify, and I read this beforehand, FYI it's pronounced fought like the past tense of fight. Thank you for clarifying name pronunciations. I'm sure we've gotten, Numerous names wrong all, all you know over the course of last year. Um, and, of course, Matt and I, I think, are shooting about 10% on pronouncing Polynesian players' last names. So um, thank you for that. Um, and the reason I thought we'd start here, Matt, is because it opens the door to a, a bit of a discussion here on some of the news of Tuesday morning. And most notably, Jordan Scott saying he will not use an extra year of eligibility in 2021. And that Diomede Lenore, and this is probably a little surprising, at least, is open to the idea and is considering it. Has a class of eligibility, or I should say. He's taking one more class at the University of Oregon through the winter term. I don't know if we expected that to be the case from Diomede. In fact, I would have expected he would have jumped out and said, "Hey, like Jordan, nope, this is my last game." Uh, um, you know, it's been great to be here, Oregon, but I'm but I'm finishing my career. So let's let's start with the significance of that, and then let's jump into. Um, S FOT's question here about kind of how the eligibility works. Were you surprised with that, Matt? And I guess we may, again, we're recording this prior to interviews with offensive players on Wednesday. We may have more players who we know by the time that you're listening to this recording, um, what their plan is, but were you surprised with at least the kind of keeping the door slightly open?
1: I was, um, I was not anticipating I was anticipating theometer to do exactly what Jordan Scott did. Uh, both guys shortly after the Rose bowl came back and said, Hey, we're coming back and then they're going to play their senior years. And then COVID hit. And all of a sudden we see players across the country and understandably. So with NFL intentions, uh, possibilities decide, you know what with COVID and the uncertainty of playing a season, I'm not playing this year. And Lenore was one of them. And he obviously decided to opt back in on Tuesday or on Tuesday. He said that, you know, a large part of that decision was based on, he didn't know at the time of his opt out that football would be played in the pack 12. And once he got the clearance that it was going to be played and played on time for the most part, uh, he was back in. And Jordan Scott, both 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 Scott and Lenore are guys I look at and think they kind of are who they are, and they've shown enough to be NFL players. I think Lenore's stock is probably certainly higher than Jordan's. And another year of of college, I don't think, can really greatly in, improve their stock uh, from an NFL standpoint. I, I think Lenore is like a, you know, middle round, possibly, or, you know, second round draft pick. He's one of the best corners in the country. Um, could he be, could he work his way into the first round? Sure. But it's literally doing it for, you know, the, the, the cachet of, Hey, I want to be a first round draft pick or making a couple, you know, a million dollars more a year in in salary or or what have you, he's going to get picked, uh, you know, and he's going to have a really good chance at making a roster and being an instant impact guy as a rookie in the 2021 season. So I was a little surprised that Lenore did not take the same path that Jordan did. And Jordan just flat out came out and said like, yeah, this is my last game and it should be. Um, for, for Jordan Lenore come came out and, and said that he hasn't really decided yet and he sees the the he, he came back and he had a really strong year and he's improved his NFL stock and he's had a strong year and his he's accomplished a lot of the goals that he's wanted to accomplish by returning but he also said that he's registered for for a class he needs to take to graduate in winter quarter. He understands that coming back could also help him improve in other areas of his game, and it's a little surprising. I, I didn't anticipate him to at least keep the door open. I don't think he comes back even after what he said, but I think there is, there is a part of me that's pretty surprised that he didn't, you know, open a case, shut the door, and say that yeah, I'm I'm done after this. It's, you know, I'm, I'm off to the NFL. Go get paid is my is my message to him.
0: I'm with you. I, and my instinct and what I anticipate is that'll still be the decision, but maybe he's somebody who just really loves this experience. And, and, and also maybe there's also a part of him and this could be a shared sentiment amongst the team of like 2021 could be a really special year for Oregon football. Maybe he wants to be a part of that and and just putting his pro aspirations on hold for another year. But I, I think we both expect once, A decision is finalized here, and it'll probably happen sometime. Not probably. It'll happen sometime in January, obviously. We've got a couple days left in December. He's not going to make a decision and announce it in the next couple of days before the game, Um, I wouldn't think. But um, I, I think he'll probably end up taking that route, and I think that's the right choice for him. In terms of how this works, it is a blanket waiver by the NCAA for all fall athletes, um, do they have to opt in? Can they, can they wait and use it later? No, it's just literally a pause on the eligibility um, is my understanding. And Matt, you can correct me if I'm off base on this, but like if it, it also applies to non seniors. So like if you're yep. Tyler Shuck and you're a red shirt sophomore next year, you're a red shirt sophomore. If you're Sean dollars, and he's already said this um, he's a red shirt freshman this year, he's a red shirt freshman next year. He'll be a third year freshman in 2021. So Yeah, there's nothing to opt into. This is not a wait and see thing. This is literally just like everybody's eligibility clock stays exactly where it is right now. It does not move and it doesn't really matter what the circumstances is. Circumstances are, I should say. Like if you didn't play at all this year, if you played every game, if you played below the quote unquote typical, and that's part of the reason there's been no discussion on who's redshirting and whatnot. I mean, you can say who's clearly not going to play much this year but there's been no discussion of like the redshirt portion of it and that's just because everybody is quote unquote redshirting anyway from an eligibility perspective so i think it's a good question to establish that and again i think also kind of lays the groundwork for what will be a a key discussion here after the season ends on on saturday of okay season's over who's back in 2021 i assume we're going to get some players who will talk with after the game on Saturday, I'm assuming we'll see others announce their decisions later on social media, but this is going to lay the groundwork for at least what the basis of the roster looks like before they conclude um, the 2021 recruiting class, whether that be via prep recruit transfer, um, you, you know, you, you name it. So it's an important way that this class and this, I shouldn't say this roster is being built in 2021. Some of it will depend on what these players decide to do with an extra year of eligibility. Second question from at Ryan Johnson, 15. If Avalos leaves for Boise State, who would be some potential replacements? And Matt, before we jump into that, I think it's important to also um, acknowledge that we did speak with Andy Avalos on Tuesday morning, um, along with about half a dozen defensive players. He was asked about this opening, about what, what was going on there. And he said, there has been no process. I have not been engaged in that process. I'm sure they have a process they're going through, but we're focused on ours here and we're focused on finishing it. We are, we are very blessed to be in this opportunity, not only part of this university, but the opportunity to finish the season that's been so challenging, that's demanded so much focus and growth over the course of the year. So Avalos, at least, as fir- we should know, this is the first time he has been available, I think since being tied to this position. And everybody was kind of going, okay, what's his stance going to be here? And sometimes you get to tell, right, of like, okay, that was kind of a guarded statement. Okay, like in Cristobal's case, I thought the way he handled things indicated to me at least, seems like he's probably sticking around unless he's a really good poker player. I think Andy Avalos's answer, I, I kind of was compelled to to feel a little bit more if we're just saying which side we lean on and based upon purely what, what he said, not on anything else we've heard. I kind of got the sense that there's a pretty good chance. He'll stay at Oregon just based upon the way he answered the question. Um, and what he said now it's also he notable. Says he
1: hasn't spoke to boys. I was just, just going to say, certainly has. <laughs>
0: I was just going to say because he hasn't engaged in the process. Doesn't mean those speaking for him have not. So that's an important distinction. Um, And it's also one that Mario Cristobal also utilized about the Auburn position of, I haven't spoken to anybody. I don't know about my agent. Um, So I think that clearly he is a candidate for this job. But I thought it was important to at least provide the context of what was said on Tuesday morning regarding um, that Boise State opening. Obviously, as we said on Monday's show, Avalos played there, coached there, tons of experience in Boise. He used the term, has a lot of, I think, sweat equity there. Um, Spent a lot of time there. Matt, let's switch it to Ryan's question here. If, and again, it's if right now, because we have no finality on this. And again, with the 24 hour news window, by the time you listen to this podcast, he might have already taken the the job. job. (laughs) (laughs) So, so we don't know, but who are some names? Let's just a couple that you think are preliminary candidates. If, and again, using the uppercase, if he does take the job.
1: Yeah. I, I think the first thing that Mario Cristobal has to do is look inward. And say, okay, is there a candidate within my staff that makes the most logical sense to become the new defensive coordinator at Oregon? Uh, Ken Wilson was a defensive coordinator at Nevada for some time. Coaches linebackers just like Andy Avalos does. Keith Hayward was up for the gig last time when John, uh, when Jim Levitt uh, and Oregon mutually parted ways, aka was fired, uh, and then Crystal Ball interviewed Hayward, and then ended up hiring avalos as we obviously know um joe Salavea is a defensive line coach associate head coach run game coordinator defensively um a guy that arizona has flirted with the last i don't know five years six years maybe even longer of trying to hire him as either their head coach or their defensive line coach or their defensive coordinator um and then Rod Chance was also a coordinator uh, at the Big Sky FCS level um, prior to him coming to Oregon ahead of the 2000 and, I believe, 18 season. And then he went to Minnesota as the cornerbacks coach. and Now he is currently the quarterbacks coach at Oregon. So you need to look at those four guys and ask yourself, okay, is there someone on here that's on our roster already that is the most logical – name out there and makes the most sense it, it, to, to hire within, or do we need to go from outside the program to bring in the defensive coordinator? And that, I, I think there's positives for both sides. Um, I think Oregon fan is, is still kind of used to continuity within the staff and everyone being on staff for a decade or more um and very little rocking the boat if you will with with coaching change and I think to those fans I would say you need to get past that. that 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 is no longer the norm in college football um coaches are moving just as much as players are moving and transferring um if not more and they have better freedoms to, do, to, to move than players do and that's not right and that's a different tangent but we'll go on at another time but the idea that you're going to hire a staff and that that entire staff is going to stay intact for the most part for a decade at times is gone. And I, I think it's the ultimate sign of respect when your coordinators are getting hired to become head coaches. It happened with Arroyo to UNLV this past offseason. season. It could potentially happen this year with Andy Avalos. And that means you're winning and it means you're producing good players. It means you're producing good, good units offensively, defensively or special teams and other programs want what you have and are trying to emulate that. And I think that is a clear sign that you are on the up and up as a program. So you should be embracing this mentality that your assistant coaching staff continues to get rated as long as crystal ball stays here because his track record for hiring somebody is top notch. We know that he will go out and find a really good candidate. If it's not internally, um, I I would not be surprised if Cristobal taps into uh, a a coordinator that was very similar to Joe Moorhead, where Moorhead was fired as a head coach at his previous stop, and Oregon was able to swoop in and bring him in. Um, I I think a guy like Derek Mason at Vanderbilt, who was the head coach, was fired during the middle of the year, defensive-minded guy coached at Stanford for a long time under Jim Harbaugh uh, with elite defenses that gave Oregon fits. And this is a guy that has SEC ties, has West Coast ties, has national ties, uh, would be someone that could come in and continue to produce really good defenses um, for Oregon. I I think you look at personal connections, and this one could really – Hurt your biggest probably challenger in the Pac 12 and USC. Mario Cristobal calling defensive coordinator Todd Orlando, a guy that Orlando worked under Cristobal at FIU in the early, you know, know, a decade or so ago, and a guy that is good friends with Cristobal. Would he come to Eugene after spending one year with the Trojans? Um, That would be, I think. Personally, if Andy Avalos is to leave, that might be, my opinion, the best case scenario. You hurt USC, you bring in a proven defensive coordinator who's done it at a bunch of different stops, who has a good relationship with with Mario Cristobal, and is a really good recruiter as well.
0: I like the Orlando one, personally. Um, we should also note, and this was something we wrote about a little bit and talked about leading up to the Pactol Championship game, also went to the same high school as Joe Moorhead and and close friends with Moorhead. So tons of personal connections with Orlando and Oregon's, well, two of Oregon's three most important coaches on their staff. So that's an interesting name. And again, this is a conversation that I think we may be in the next couple of days and weeks having a, a lot of discussion about this or Possibly no discussion of this based upon what Andy decides to do or what Boise State decides to do as well um, in the coming days here. Last question before the break from at Frederico underscore cool. That's a pretty sweet name. I'm struggling to find answers for the quarterback play decline. Do you think it's defenses that have adjusted to the short throw game, i.e. packing the box, that have led to QB1 struggles? I've thought quite a bit about this. Um, as I'm sure a lot of Oregon fans have too. California USC have a lot of talent in the secondary. If we're just looking at it from a, what have other teams done differently or what's been the difference there? I look and I just point to Cal's got NFL defensive backs. USC has NFL defensive backs. Talanoa Funga is a first team all American. He was a defensive player of the year in the conference. Um, and you look at the teams that have had the best defensive backfields the last couple of years, it's, it's really been Cal, USC, and Washington. Um, and those three programs have produced a lot of NFL talent at that position groups. And I think that plays a role, certainly, of, of just, hey, these are defenses that have talented players. But I think when I look at it and I take a more, I think a, a larger glance at this, I think this is less to do about the opposition and, honestly, more to do with Tyler shock. And I don't want to beat this horse into the ground. Cause we've talked about this a lot over the last couple of weeks. And hopefully we have, well, hopefully we are going to have another game on Saturday to die, you know, to, to divulge through, to, to digest, I should say, to think about to go into the off season with a different perspective or maybe the same perspective we have right now. But I still think like, Hey USC Cal, good defensive backs certainly. Both those teams we should note have really good defensive coordinators. I mean, the defensive staff at Cal, all the a bunch of those guys have been head coaches or defensive coordinators at different stops. I mean, their head coach is a top, one of the top defensive coordinators in the country for a while. Um, their defensive coordinator was the head coach at at Fresno State. They've got other defensive coaches on that staff with a ton of experience that are that are really good coaches. Um, USC. We just talked about Todd Orlando and, and what he's done there. Like I think there deserves to be credit there. But like for me, ultimately, I I don't know how much of this is opposing teams and as much as this is just like I don't know if he has the yips, quote unquote, or or if he's lost his confidence or however you want to put it. But like something has shifted and changed with Tyler Shuck, and we talked about it at length on Monday. So I don't want to like belabor this too much. But a big part of what Saturday's game is going to teach us and instruct us is what does Oregon have at quarterback going into next season? I know a lot of fans are already saying they need to make a change that we already know what they've got. I would say that, that, that I think there's going to be a competition of some sort regardless, but I also am opening the door of like, Hey, Tyler Shuck was pretty dang good for about three and a half games to start the season struggled in the last two and a half. But if he can bounce back, he's a young quarterback now with a couple week break against an Iowa state defense, that is, not the best against the pass, but certainly really good at getting after the quarterback, really good at, um, you know, up front against the run statistically, at least that if he can go out and have a good performance there, that should at least change the perspective for a lot of folks. I don't know, Matt, have you put much thought into this of like, do you think it's more opposing defenses or do you see it mostly as being a a number 12 problem?
1: I think it's a combination. Sure. I, I think USC's defense is pretty good. I think California's defense, um, historically under Wilcox is pretty good. Oregon State, they're not a good defense, and that was not acceptable. Um, UCLA did some funky things in that game as well. Um, and it's I think it's it become clear in my eyes, at least, that this year UCLA's defense is better than we were expecting them to be. Um, but I also think Shuck has, has had some really down weeks And his play has not been to what it was earlier on in in the season. And I think part of the issue is that. I also think, you know, go back to the championship game against USC. And yes, I understand that Shuck was not playing well and that he was in a funk and Oregon was trying to protect him. But they didn't do him any favors either. I mean, he didn't attempt a, a pass in the fourth quarter until like the final three minutes of the game or what have you. And I i don't think that, you know, you're protecting him because you don't want him to make a mistake, but then you got yourself into a situation where you needed him to make a play and he's not in any kind of rhythm. His confidence has been zapped completely because you, you've, you've removed all, you know, impact from him from the game up until that point. And then all of a sudden you ask him, Hey, we now need you to go and throw a first down when we haven't asked you to do anything other than hand the ball off for the last 20 or so minutes of the game. Um, that's a tough ask. And so I, I think it's a combination of a whole bunch of things. Um, I'll be really curious to see kind of how he looks against Iowa state, having a couple weeks off without games to prepare for Obviously, They're preparing for, for Iowa state and the fiesta bowl, but it's not the pressures of, hey, we got to keep winning. Hey, we need to stop this losing streak here. This week we're doing this, and then next week we're changing it all up because we're now playing this opponent. You've got one opponent. You've got multiple weeks to prepare. You've got less stress from school going on right now because uh, that's on winter break. Curious to see if if he looks rejuvenated, if he looks different than what we've seen in the last you know three weeks of the regular season. We've said it on the on the show before that this is this is an important week for him. It's an important week for the program to know what they have going into the off season after this bowl game. And um, I, I just think sometimes we we as people we get into ruts, and you know I, I think this is one in which you know he's having a bad stretch right now, and the question becomes how long do you let him try and work himself out of that uh, and, and if, if you're willing to let him go, how long does that that stretch go? And, that, and that's, I think, probably the toughest part of being a coach because um, you, you're not quite sure. You want to be loyal to your guy, but at the same time, you need to win games. And if he can't pl- perform at a high level consistently, is he the best option to make you the best team possible? And it's a tough ask. I, I think he can get there. I think, I think he can get back to being – one of the better quarterbacks in the country. And uh, I think this week will will tell us a long ways of, of that direction.
0: I think one wild card or one, I guess, item to note going into this is he's heading back to his home state for the first time all season. Yeah. He'll have friends and family in the stands. He'll get to see his parents. They'll get to watch him play in person. I would imagine that's if there's ever a time where he is going to be comfortable he's going to be and he he did note right after the Pacto championship game how difficult this has been for him and for the team from a just from like a mental perspective a mental health perspective of being kind of isolated from friends family I mean they're basically in their own little bubble down there um, and I I'm not going to say that because of those he suddenly becomes a 10 times better player but there's a scenario in my head where we see him play at a much higher level not entirely because of that but in part because hey for the first time the environment's a little different he's back home Um, he's seeing familiar people he's seeing familiar sights and sounds etc and maybe that snaps him out of what I think is obviously been a really tough couple of weeks and couple of games for for Tyler Shuck and the offense
1: All right, let's take a quick break. We come back. We'll wrap up the mailbag with
0: three more questions about Oregon football.
1: All right. Welcome back to the and Audible's podcast. I'm Matt Prem. Eric Scopa with me as always. I want to remind you, promo right now, two months for $1, thereafter that. Also, please consider giving us a review on iTunes or whatever platform you, lo- you use to listen to the podcast as well. Greatly appreciated that as well. Okay. Three more questions, Eric. Let's go.
0: All right. Next question from at MVH underscore genetics. Do Sean Dollars and Travis Dye share carries next year? What shot do the Ducks have with the San Diego running back Cardwell? I'm impressed with Mario, but these undersized running backs confuse me. When do we get an NFL size commit? Um, Well, let's just, we'll run through all of these questions because he threw, he threw three of them at us and these are all running back central. The first one here, um, I think before we even get to do dollars and Dye share carries, it's, is C.J. Verdell on the team next year? <laughs> like, that that changes the equation. Um, I am kind of not sure exactly where his head's at. He hasn't been available to speak, gosh, since maybe the first or second game of the season. Um, maybe even before that. I don't know if he's spoken all year, to be honest with you, since, like, fall camp. Um, I have to go back and look. So it's really hard to gauge that. Um and then the other element, and by the way, we should note, Mario Cristobal did say today that there's a chance he'll play in the festival, which indicates he's obviously still dealing with the injury that kept him out of the pactal championship game. If he's back, well, there is a third running back to contend with. And I would assume he would get the lion's share of the carries at least to start the season, um, assuming he is healthy. So there's that angle here. Um, and then if it's, but let's just say Verdell is not on the roster, which I think is what this is suggesting. Um I think you see Dye be the primary running back in terms of he's on the field the most, but I wouldn't be surprised to see Sean Dollars take a step. And I think you have to also include Cyrus Sibivilekio in this discussion too of like, maybe it's a deal where Travis Dye is on the field both as a runner and as a pass catcher. Dollars is primarily a, a runner. I know he's also said to be a good pass catcher, although he did drop a pretty catchable ball in the conference championship game. And then when you get to short yardage slash the goal line, you turn it over to Cyrus. But um, I, I don't expect, like I'll put it this way, if this is just simplifies it, I don't expect, regardless of what the personnel looks like exactly, and again, there are question marks, that it's just going to be one guy carries it every time. That's not been what we've seen from Oregon's offense as long as Jim Astro has been here. There has always been some sort of work share. There's always been some sort of split in terms of the, the workload. And I don't anticipate whether Verdell's on the roster or not, that this is just going to be only – you know, this is going to be Sean Dollars 25 times a game, or this is going to be Travis Dye 25 times a game and everyone else is picking up scraps. I think this will continue to be a situation where you're going to see some sort of mix and match of guys.
1: Yeah, I I, I look at Verdell, and this might be the toughest decision I have seen in a long time from an Oregon player about going pro or or staying because I don't think this year has been close to what we expected out of C.J. Verdell. He's been Not injured all. again. Um, his production has dipped a little bit, and you could argue because of that. We don't even know if he's going to play in the Fiesta Bowl. I mean, Cristobal hopes he plays, but we also know, no offense, I understand why he does this, but <laughs> – Cristobal has said guys look good and they don't even show up dressed for games. You know, he's not going to give away advantages um, if he doesn't have to. And so like, I get it. I'm there for it, but I'm just also being honest. Like we've heard that, you know, guys are good to go before and, or should be back relatively soon. And, you know, Jonah Tuanu, a a guy that during fall camp, Cristobal said was going to be, you know, out for a very short period of time. He has not been on the sideline all year. Um, so I don't know if Verdell is gonna play. And I look at this and think, what what has this year been for him? A guy that some people my I wasn't one of them, but some people viewed him as Pac-12 MVP type production going into the year. And he hasn't lived up to it. Does he come back and does he hurt his stock even more? Or can he go and go pro and get money and get paid because running back shelf life is uh, a a very short time. And he's a guy who all three years at Oregon. Now he's had injury problems and, uh, or he's had injuries pop up. I'd say four.
0: Remember he redshirted his first year. He was hurt hurt
1: too. That's why, that's why he redshirted. He got a concussion. Um, so like I look at this and think like he should come back, but by coming back he risks r- repeating history again and hurting him even more. So I'm with you. Like I don't. I, that's a tough one. I don't know what to do with that one. Um, should he go pro? I think Die becomes the every down back, but it's probably going to become even more of a rotation um, unless we get uh, unless Die really you know changes his body. Um, and and puts on the weight. I do think dollars needs to play more. Um, very small sample size, without a doubt. But the one game he's played really against USC, he looked really good. And I, I think you need to you need to figure out what he can do for you before Die and Cyrus Abila-Kio, um graduate. And it, it also could be a case, Eric, where go back to the original question at the beginning of the show of eligibility. Like Die could be a junior next year instead of a senior, yeah, which true. could give Oregon some more flexibility. I mean, I, I think Die is, as, as Verdell has been down this season. I think Verdell. I think Die has 100% exceeded expectations.
0: Agree. Totally and, agree.
1: But I think he could be an every day down back next year at Oregon and run for a thousand yards and have like 500 receiving yards.
0: All right. Next part of this question. Cause he does have three. So I want to make sure we finish our running back discussion um, before we move on to the fifth question. What shot do the do the ducks have with San Diego running back Byron Cardwell, Matt? Um, I know you haven't put a crystal ball in for him. I know you haven't put one in for either Oregon or I think UCLA is kind of the other big obstacle. What what are your thoughts here? Is this? I mean, obviously, we're now five or six weeks away from the second signing day. As crazy as that sounds, um, expecting him to be a duck, or or is it kind of wait and see still?
1: Um, I mean, I I think it's kind of a situation right now for Oregon where it's do we want to bring him in or do we want to wait for other options? I part of me wonders, you know, if they pass on this, maybe Verdell is coming back and. He may maybe Verdell says, Hey, next year is my last year no matter what. But Dai is also communicating, hey, I want to use my extra year. Um, it, it gives me a, a year to to you know continue to get better, bigger, faster, stronger. Share the role with Verdell. And then when Verdell goes, I I, I have one year as the guy, kind of like Kenyon Barner um in 2012. So so maybe we're getting some indications from Morgan that things are are trending that way because I don't. What I've heard is they, they like Caldwell, but it's not a guy where it's we 100% without a doubt need to sign him.
0: All right. And the third part here was I am impressed with Mario, but these undersized running backs confuse me. When do we get an NFL size commit? And I, I, I just kind of want to address the size part of this. And like, I don't disagree that Oregon has some s- smaller backs. I mean, Travis Dye and CJ Verdell from a height perspective aren't massive, but like, Trey Benson, six foot one, 211 pounds. He's a freshman. He'll get bigger. Sean Dollars is 5'10, 195. Um, Javon Wilson hasn't played, but he's six two, two twelve. 212. You know, you even look at that. And Cyrus Sibibibi six one, two fifteen. 6'1, 215. These are very, you know, these are good sized running backs. You know these aren't 200, you know, none of them are Derrick Henry. <laughs> but there's not, there's, there's not like there. an
1: influx of Derrick Henry running backs every single year in in, in the recruiting.
0: I mean, Derrick Henry is literally the same size as Kayvon Thibodeau and is running for like two thousand yards in the NFL. Those guys don't exactly come around all that often. And even CJ <laughs> Verdell is is listed at 5'10, 210, 2, 10, and Travis Die at 5, 10, 200 And I think I'm going to say that I, I don't think Travis Die weighs two hundred pounds based upon how he's built. But like, even if we're arguing that, like. I don't necessarily look at this running back group and think they're really tiny guys. Um, I, and I think like this is not, and I, I understand the point too, because if you look at what Oregon has had a couple of times in the last decade or so, more than like 15 years with running backs, like Garrett Blount or Jonathan Stewart, or of course, most recently Royce Freeman, Royce Freeman. Those guys were all big 225 to 40 big running backs, tall, powerful guys. That would be a nice addition to this team. Um, but again, like the reality is, is that some of them are out there, but most of them end up playing at Alabama. Um, and it, it, it's, it's difficult to, to kind of find some of these guys. And I think you, you have to be careful in terms of diminishing the size of these guys. Cause I, I look at Trey Benson and I look at, um, well, I think Trey Benson in particular, I look at it and be like, he's six one two ten 210 as a true freshman. I bet you that kid's going to be six one two twenty five 225 by the time he's really seeing the field. And he was a player who was, by the way, getting all sorts of praise during the offseason and during fall camp prior to suffering some sort of injury that has kept him out for this season. I know Mario hasn't said that, but we've we've, we've learned that from social media. Um, he's he's tweeted something to or Instagrammed something to that effect. Gosh, I sound so old. Um, <laughs> Instagrammed it. He's posted something on Instagram on his IG. Um, so like, like I don't. I I think from a, like, of course, Oregon's backs aren't massive, but these aren't. I mean, when are you going to get an NFL size to commit? Like, go look at the NFL right now, and aside from a guy like Derrick Henry, the, the majority of his running backs are like five ten to six foot one and weigh between one hundred ninety five to two hundred twenty pounds. That's really kind of fits the the size and um, and, and I guess body types that Oregon has across the board at the position.
1: I don't, I'm not necessarily concerned about the body type that Oregon has at running back. That's not something I'm too too worried about or too focused on. It just feels like Oregon hasn't been able, and look, this feels unfair to say to Verdell because it's injuries, but Oregon just hasn't had a guy at running back in three years Where you look at this and and say, A, he's going to consistently be out there every single game. That just hasn't been the case. And B, whether it's because of injuries and he's playing through it or trying to and then eventually can't or because he just simply isn't this good, but it doesn't feel like Oregon has like a top flight running back in the country. Um, Going back to like 2000 and, and probably a little bit before that, even every year it felt like for the most part, where Oregon has had a running back where you say he's a top 10 running back in the country. And I don't think you can say that about the ducks the last couple of seasons. And that's where my, like, if I have an issue with running backs, that's where it lands. Like this is a program that every year has traditionally had one of the country's best running backs in the country. And I don't think you can say that. I don't care what size. I don't care if he's a scat back, speed back, power back, all purpose back, whatever you you, want to use to describe them. Um, I don't care what style it is. It's just they haven't had a guy of any style that says to me, hey, this is going to be a guy that's top 10 at his position in the country.
0: I think that's a really fair point, Matt. And I think you even look at the 2021 class and you go, Ty Thompson's one of the best quarterbacks in the country. You go Oregon's wide receiver group among the best in the country. You look at the offensive line commitments they've got, three of the best, four of the best, sorry, in the country. You look at the tight ends, two of the best in the country. You look at running back, and I don't want to diminish Seven McGee, but he's probably going to be used more as a slot receiver hybrid than a traditional running back. And you kind of go, even in this class, which is, I think, pretty undoubtedly the best offensive recruiting hall in program history and probably not even that close to anything Oregon's had before. Um, it's a, a ways off. You even look at that and you go, wh- "Where, where is that elite running back coming from? And you look at the last couple classes and I think Trey, Trey Benson is going to be really good. And I think Sean Dollars is the upside to be really good. We just haven't quite seen it yet. And hopefully one of those two guys develops into that player. Hopefully seven McGee becomes a DeAnthony Thomas kind of caliber, versatile offensive weapon. And that changes the dynamic, but you're right in terms of there was a, about yeah. There was about six, seven years there where between Jonathan Stewart, maybe more than that, between Jonathan Stewart to then Garrett Blunt to then Michael James and Kenyon Barner and then to Royce Freeman, Oregon always had a running back who was at least, if he wasn't a Doak Walker candidate, he was at least someone that you could discuss in that manner. And I know C.J. Verdell entered the season kind of discussed that way certainly hasn't played out that way. And, and you wonder if he does come back next year, if he or anyone else on this roster is capable of, of being that player. Um, and if it's not in 2021, is there somebody on this roster capable of doing that in 2022 and beyond? I think that's the, that's the question. And we know how much Mario Cristobal wants to pound the rock, but you need the kind of runner to do that. And, and I, I don't want to diminish the run game because they continue to be, I think, solid there, but they are lacking a little bit of that. I think on this year's team, I don't I think mean- much question.
1: You you ran through the the the, the chronological order of, of running backs and the history of it and from a starting perspective, but we didn't even really discuss like Thomas Tyner. I mean, think about how good he looked in his two years when he was healthy at Oregon and in before he had to retire and then it was eventually transferred to Oregon State. We didn't bring up DeAnthony Thomas and I mean This was a guy that in 2013, you know, 594 yards rushing in 2012 was a guy that was all over the place with 701 yards rushing. Um, We didn't bring up Byron Marshall, a guy that ran for 1,000 yards as a sophomore and then moved to receiver in 2014 because Oregon's running back room was – Marcus Mari had Royce Freeman, Thomas Tyner, and Kanae Benoit within the group. And Mariota was back. And they didn't need all that talent at running back because and Byron Marshall could play receiver and they needed help there. Um, I go back to like 2008 when it was Jeremiah Johnson and Kenyon Barner. Or not Kenyon Barner, Jeremiah Johnson and LeGarrette Blunt. Um so like I just think about all the, the these great running backs that Oregon has had over the last decade and a half, two decades. And I don't think whoever Oregon puts out there is as consistent and as reliable and as, as talented, whatever you want to use as a lot of these other guys. And that and I don't and the thing is is Oregon's had a whole plethora of all sorts of running backs, like Michael James. Is a power back that was 5'9, five, 5'8. Five, Kenyon Barner was an all-purpose guy that was 5'9. They had Legarrett Blunt, who was six foot what, two and 240 pounds. They had Jonathan Stewart, who was 5'11 and like 230 pounds. They had Royce Freeman, who was the same size. They had Thomas Tyner, who was six foot two hundred like ten pounds, and was an insane blend of speed and power. They had DeAnthony Thomas, who was five nine and just electric and quick as hell byron marshall um jeremiah johnson you know they had a lot of different types and it doesn't to me it doesn't matter what type they have they just need better consistency at the running back position
0: no doubt and i i think it's going to be interesting to see if that player is on this roster now and if not i think that's disappointing but hey you never know. I mean, you really don't know because I, I I have a lot of upside for Sean Dollars and I have probably almost as much, if not a little bit more from Trey Benson from a physical side that he can at least develop into somebody who provides something Oregon hasn't had consistently recently, which is somebody who can run between the tackles and get out in space and, and make players miss. Like I look at him and think you talk about NFL size running backs. You know, that was something we discussed a second ago. I think he has that type of capability physically. Fifth question from at Oregon. Vlone or Vlone why won't Chris as play Anthony Brown or Justin Flo in the beginning of the season Do they favor Sewell because of his last name um, we don't have to spend a ton of time on this because I don't think this question is particularly informative I mean t- just just for both players like Tyler Shuck was the starting quarterback before the season started I think pretty clear that was going to be the case and He looked very capable of handling that. And also when you have a brand new young quarterback, it's and he's doing well, right? You want to see what you have. It doesn't necessarily benefit you to insert Anthony Brown into the lineup and maybe shake confidence to like, what's the benefit there if if Tyler's performing at a high level, which say what you want about Tyler Shuck, but the Tyler Shuck we saw the first three and a half games of the season or so was really, really good like legitimately one of the best quarterbacks in the country i think people kind of are forgetting that um and to the second part there with justin flow he played in the first game and then suffered um a torn meniscus is what he has said and has been out for the rest of the season so this was not like this the concept of them favoring sewell because of his last name over flow and citing some sort of like nepotism is like Kind of offensive. <laughs> and and also, like the reality is here too, is not, it's not like it was not like it was a floor, a flow or Sewell sort of deal. It was, Flo was playing a position that had a starter returning in Isaac Slaymato which we discussed quite a bit before the season started. Um, that was the player he was battling for reps. Whereas Noah Sewell had to fight with Drew Mathis, who had, I think, maybe one or two starts last year. I think one against, um, against Colorado or, or, or I forget which game it was, but it was a game where Troy Dye was out with an injury like and his nowhere near as good of a player overall as an Isaac Slade, Mateo Atiyo. So it's kind of an uneven situation here. So I don't think there was any favoritism at all. And I don't, I don't even know if I need to throw it to Matt because I think he probably is going to just kind of agree with most of what I just <laughs> said. But this question popped up there and I thought, you know, I think a lot of people maybe are kind of wondering what's going on with with Justin Flo, um, second highest rated recruit Oregon has ever had. Um, big time five star recruit out of SoCal. His brother, we should note, just also signed about a little over a week ago. Jonathan, he's going to be another exciting young linebacker. Um, this was not like a Oregon went with Noah Sewell because of Pene Sewell sort of deal in the least bit. This was a Justin Flo got hurt and was also before that behind a really talented player and Isaac Slade Matovitiya.
1: Yeah, Eric. You uh, you guess you guessed correctly. Uh, I, <laughs> I I agree with basically everything you said. Um, I just and I mean think about this. Oregon, we're we're looking at the, and I don't really want to be super negative towards Anthony Brown because it's not fair. Okay, but Oregon's coaches saw Shuck and what they saw in spring, the four practices or whatever that they had. They saw Shuck in all of fall camp that they saw with him and Anthony Brown and they never wavered on Shuck being the clear cut number one guy. They saw Shuck in the first few games. They could have gotten Anthony Brown in. They chose not to. They saw something in practice and they're the ones that are paid the big bucks um, in fall camp in practice in the season to stick with, Tyler Shuck and not put in Anthony Brown until the last game of the year. Um, I I think that says something like what, what was Anthony Brown doing in practice that made him, that made Tyler Shuck be the clear cut number one guy. Like That's not discussed enough.
0: No. And I I think the other thing is Anthony Brown. And this is the way I perceived it. We've heard something similar as well. Like it, it, it was brought in as kind of an insurance policy if Shuck got hurt or if something happened similar to this, where Shuck didn't play very well um, because you look back to what happened in, in 2017 when Justin Herbert gets hurt and they have to turn to Braxton Burmeister. And the reality was if Tyler Shuck got hurt, they were going to have to turn to kale Mellon or Jay Butterfield or um, why am I blanking on the quarterback from Alabama, Robbie Ashford. You know, Robbie Ashford? Like one of those guys who are literally freshmen with zero game reps, and that would be a disaster scenario for a team that has higher aspirations. And so I think, like I don't, again, I don't, I also don't want to be the one here just saying Anthony Brown's not very good and, and that he shouldn't be playing because I think that's very unfair. He had a quality career at Boston College, but the reality is he left Boston College knowing he was not going to likely be their starter there this year and came to Oregon knowing he probably wasn't going to be the starter at Oregon either. Um, and so I like, say what you want about Tyler Shuck and the way he finished the season. And you think if you think Anthony Brown is a better player, who knows We maybe get an opportunity to see that in the fiesta bowl. If, if Shuck falters again, or, or maybe they'll make a change, which I don't think anyone expects, but um, to suggest that like the staff made poor choices by going with the player that they had spent the last two years grooming for this position and working to get to this spot instead, you know, in place of somebody they brought in basically to ensure there wasn't another Braxton Burmeister situation. I think that's kind of faulty logic. All right. Last question here. Okay. You have something more? No, no. I'm going to say, go ahead. Okay. Last question from at Jeremy one time. This is a fun one for us. Um, If both of you guys had to pick a position group to coach and recruit at Oregon for the next three years, what would it be? And why um, I almost want to just pick like the position group that has the absolute least impact on the results of the game, because I'm not a football coach and <laughs> I would much rather have somebody who has a lot of experience coaching that position group involved in that position group. So let me create that. Let me put that caveat out, caveat out there that like, if you want Oregon to win football games, you want me least involved as possible. So maybe you want me in terms of like, maybe you want me as a place kickers coach, but I would also say then like, Maybe you don't because we've seen the last couple of years like place kicking has been a problem and it's been something that maybe could be rectified with a little bit better instruction there. I don't want to take shots at Bobby Williams, but like maybe I just did, but like that's not been a position group that's been very strong. Um, But if we're just talking about this, like of which group would be the most enjoyable to work with, like give me the receivers. Like look at what Oregon's bringing in at wide receiver in this class. Look at what they should have back. Um, gosh, it's, it's funny and kind of crazy to think back to the, uh, the 2017 season. Um, when it was like, Hey, or even 28, was it, was 2018 the year Dylan Mitchell's last year? It was right. Yes. The 2018 season of like, Hey, let's throw to Dylan Mitchell. And if we throw to anybody else, it's like probably not going to, it's probably going to end up in the turf or in the opponent's hands. Cause it's not going to be caught to now. You're like, wow, Oregon legitimately has four really, really good. Receivers, two are seniors, two are younger guys. And I'm talking about Johnny Johnson and Jalen Redd as the older guys. You're talking about Devin Williams and Micah Pittman as younger guys. You're talking about a guy like um, Chris Hudson, who we haven't really seen break out, but who everybody raves about behind the scenes. And, oh, yeah, you've got three of the nation's absolute top wide receiver recruits coming in next year and Troy Franklin, Dante Thornton, and Isaiah Brevard. Like, give me that group. And with the upside of, hey, we've got Ty Thompson on the roster we've got Tyler Shuck on the roster we've got Jay Butterfield on the roster to throw passes to from a recruiting perspective that I think that position group is going to continue to do a really really good job recruiting and you're going to see it I think there's a there's some really good talented players even in the northwest at wide receiver in the 2022 class Tobias Merriweather being the first to come to mind he lives basically in Portland right over the border in Vancouver um, that's a big time top 150 kid like I just look at that and think that's a position that it's going to go from being pretty undoubtedly like the worst position group on the team in 2018 to 2020 where we're talking about is like, or I should say 2021 and beyond of like, boy, that's going to be a really talented, fun group. And and I think for the first time in a really long time, you could look up in the NFL by the midpoint of this decade, 23, 24 and be like, Oregon legitimately has like three to four to five guys that are not only on NFL rosters, but that are difference makers.
1: Okay, so if I'm coaching, I'm also going to assume that I have the acumen and... There you go. Yeah, we need that. And the (laughs) the resume to coach these positions. And so with that in mind, give me quarterbacks. Um, Sure. I I think whoever is the quarterback in 2021, Oregon is going to have a pretty darn good offense. And... There's nothing that beats being the position coach at the most important position. I'm all about elevating my program, elevating my guys, also elevating myself. Fast-track me to becoming an offensive coordinator and then uh, down the road a head coach somewhere. Give me the the quarterbacks because with Tyler Shuck, possibly Anthony Brown, Jay Butterfield, Kale Millen, Robbie Ashford, now you throw in Ty Thompson – you got six scholarship quarterbacks. I think all six of those guys you could you could probably argue could start either for a team next year or eventually down the road for a Pac-12 team. Um, you got a ton of talent there. And with the receivers and the running backs and the tight ends that Oregon is bringing in, big opportunity to put up a ton of yards. And the great thing about it is is I look at that group and think, you, you find your starter in 2021 and that guy could be there for three years. All three yeah. years are there. And, and when you have that type of longevity with a position at that magnitude, you, you get some special things to happen.
0: I think that's a fun question or a fun way to end the show. Um, and again, the caveat we have to offer is like neither of us would, would do much good, but I think it would be fun to work. And I think the passing game in general has the upside. And I think Matt clearly agrees to be really, really good for the next couple of years. Like, I mean, you got the best quarterback recruits the Oregon's ever had. You got the best receiver recruits Oregon's ever had coming through. Um, I think the upside is really, really high.
1: Agreed. 100%. Uh, Thank you for submitting your questions. We really appreciate it. We will do another show later on this week. Uh, We're going to have an Iowa State beat reporter on the show to preview the Fiesta Bowl. We'll also have our typical uh, preview game. Show uh, on Friday, New Year's Day, get you ready to go for the Fiesta Bowl, and then we'll close out the week with probably a Saturday afternoon-ish, early evening game, uh, post-game podcast. <whistles> on the Fiesta Bowl. So, where, and myself, Matt Frame, thank you for listening to the Austin awesome Audible Spot. The baseball season is in full swing, which means you need to listen to Fantasy Baseball Today, part of the CBS Sports Podcast Network.